Welcome to a talk from St. Saviour's Sunbury. We hope it blesses you. Today I get to preach on one of my favourite passages of Scripture. Revelation chapter 21, well 21 and 22, and we're thinking about the Bride of Christ. But we're not going to look at that passage straight away. I want to lead up to there, if that's okay. We're going to start looking at Scripture at the other end of the Bible. I asked the welcome team to ensure that people had Bibles. Have most of you at least got sight of or access to a Bible either in your hands or next to somebody else who has? Are there any Bibles left at the back? Are they all gone? There's four. Has anyone not got sight of a Bible? Put your hand up if you'd like a Bible. If you could just keep your hand up, the welcome team will do their best to... And you can also use your smartphones. You're allowed to use your smartphones if you want to. But we are going to be looking at quite a bit of Scripture, and what I want to do is uh, try and weave some of this together. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, that's absolutely fine. Uh, we'll try and keep things together as we go. There's no tests at the end. You're not going to be examined. It's not an RE class. We just want to try and unlock this and help you get to grips with the enormity of it. And if by the end of today's talk, you're not ever so slightly freaked out, then I haven't done my job properly. So the Bible is a library of books. It's not just one book, it's a library of books, a whole collection of different writings written by different human authors at different times in history and different parts of the world. And they've been brought together, guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, into one book we call the Bible. But it's not one book, it's a whole library. And the first book we read is Genesis. And Genesis was written, the scholars who argue about this stuff have various dates, but we can say roughly 1,500 years ago. Uh, or sorry, rather, roughly 1,500 years before Christ. That's like 3,500 years ago, potentially. Some have it nearer to us than that, but it's quite a long time ago. And not here, not in America, not in South America, not even in Israel, but likely in perhaps a Babylon-type area, because the people of God got exiled into Babylon at a later time, and we think maybe someone wrote down the stuff that we read in Genesis. Or was it Moses? Did he write it at a different time? We don't know, but it was a long way from here. And it was a long way from the Jerusalem and the Israel that Jesus walked in. So it could have been written in what is modern-day Iraq. That's uh, the biblical place of Babylon. It could have been written uh, Egypt area. We don't know. People argue about it. But if you turn with me to the very beginning, chapter 1, we see it's called the beginning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're not going to get bogged down in all that. Hopefully, I'll get to talk about that another day. We're going to look into chapter 2. This is my, look, I use this passage of quite a bit. It's come out of my Bible. Uh, we're going to look in chapter 2. So flick over the page. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. 
So this is right back at the beginning of Scripture, and God is talking to us about how everything was made. I think I've got a picture of the Garden of Eden. There it is. There's Adam and Eve. This is a a photograph, a selfie they took that day. Uh, You know the story of how Eve came along, don't you? So God, God made Adam first, and he thought, it's not good for Adam just to do all this on his own. I'll make him a helper. He comes to Adam and says, Adam, I'm going to make you a helper. She's going to be beautiful. She is going to be wise. She's going to be funny. She's going to be the best cook, going to make the best meals, the best cakes. She's going to be a neat freak. She's going to love to tidy up after you. She's going to be really handy about the place. She's never going to grumble. She's always going to be happy. And she is going to think that you are the hunkiest hunk ever. And Adam said, wow, God, that's amazing. But, you know, everything comes at a price. How much is that going to cost me? And God said, that's going to cost you an arm and a leg, mate. So Adam says, what can I get for a rib? So that's the story of Adam and Eve. What's missing from that picture? What's missing from that picture? We've just read it. I said there wasn't going to be a test. I lied. There's something really massive missing in the picture you're looking at there. What can you see? Tell me the things you can see in the picture. Shout out. Oh, I can't hear it. Don't shout out. Stick your hands up so I can't hear what people are saying. We've got several items you can see. There's a man called, there's a woman called, and they're stood next to a, what tree? Tree of knowledge of, well done. What's missing from the picture? Well done. Give yourselves a round of applause. Often when we look at the Garden of Eden, we totally miss out the tree of life. And in fact, it's missing from most of the Bible, because from this point onwards, after the tree of life is mentioned here in Genesis, as stood next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it only gets mentioned next when God curses the serpent and curses Adam and Eve when God says in the next chapter, because you have eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we cannot let you eat also from the tree of life and live forever. And so death, brokenness, corruption, the limiting of God's plan, the limiting of God's life happens at that moment and the tree of life vanishes from the narrative of Scripture. We then wade through thousands of years and oops, hundreds and hundreds of pages of Scripture before we ever see the tree of life again. Where do we find it? Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 is where we're going to end up today, but we're going to do a bit of a journey to get there. Now, this is the thing that excites me about being a Christian. This is the thing why, as a scientist, so I did uh, astrophysics at university, And this week, found out on Facebook that me and Angela were not only... So, Angela, who was singing here, we weren't only at university at the same time. We lived in the same halls of residence, and we didn't realise until this week we shared the same kitchen. 
How bizarre is that? Anyway, uh, so what was I talking about? I can't remember now. Oh, yeah. So as a, as a scientist, someone with a science background, passionate about space and science and physics and blah, 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 all that malarkey, I'm passionately of the opinion that you would be a fool not to believe in God. That's a challenge in this day and age to say that rationally we must believe. And there's a whole string, actually, of uh, celebrities who are countering the, the angry atheists at the moment online who are saying, actually, it doesn't make sense to be an atheist. That seems to be a logical fallacy, a foolish position. It's much better to actually say, well, I've got questions, I'm not sure, or to believe. And the reason why I believe so passionately is because of the way that Scripture threads and holds together. From thousands of miles away and thousands of years ago, we read the story of creation written by one author, and we're going to end up today reading the writings of a totally different author thousands of miles away from where Genesis was written, thousands of years later, writing stuff that pulls it all together. But we're not going to go there yet. Can I have um, the next slides on the screen, please? Anyone know what that is? Menorah. Wrong. It's a Hanukkah. A Hanukkah has got nine lampstands. A menorah has only got seven. Both are used in Jewish culture. Both are full of symbolism. But this one represents uh, the miracle uh, that, that Jews remember at the time of Hanukkah, of where a little bit of oil lasted a long time. The middle lamp is higher, and it's called the face of the Hanukkah, and from it, all the others are lit. It's the source of light. Uh, the menorah uh, is very similar, just that, but with seven lampstands. Can we just go on to the next slide? And both are symbolic, not just of a candlestick, but of a tree. Anyone know which tree? Tree of life. And the next one? In Jewish culture, the tree of life is really important. And here, the tree of life is symbolizing the light in the darkness. Turn with me to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Hang on a second, I've lost my place. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Thank you. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So we started in Genesis, right at the beginning of Scripture, and now this is the beginning of John's Gospel. Uh, John was the apostle whom Jesus loved, it says in Scripture. And here John writes these incredible words about who Jesus was. Jesus was not only the source of life, he was the source of light, bringing light into the darkness. 
bringing life and light to men. With these words, John is referencing thousands of years previously the writings of whoever it was that wrote the words of Genesis in the beginning. And in John's Gospel, he starts with the very same words in the beginning. But these are separated by thousands of miles and by thousands of years where Genesis was physically written, where John was physically written, when Genesis was written, when John was written, totally separate places and times, speaking about the same stuff, about the enormous providence, the provision, the plan of God. God created a garden for Adam and Eve. In that garden, he created the provision for life, for joy, for eternity. In the provision of God's love, he enabled Adam and Eve to have the freedom to stuff it all up. Because God wasn't interested in creating life that was nothing other than sort of artificial intelligence robots. Without the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the centre, Adam and Eve would have had no real choice. They would just have been stuck, programmed to only do good, to only do what God had put them there to do. But God didn't want that. God wanted something more for you and for me. He wanted true freedom in the same way that a parent loves a child by not just wrapping them up and keeping them safe, but saying, well, okay, here's a thing called a bicycle. Trust me, you'll be fine. And the kid gets on, the kid falls over and hurts themselves and cries. Is the parent a bad parent? No. It's part of living. And as we go into life, you know, we will skin our knees loads of times, but is that because everything is bad? No, it's because we grow and we explore, and that's what God wanted for us. And so there were two trees, not just one. But God knew that the corruption that the other tree and the free choice that Adam and Eve had brought into this eternal landscape couldn't just be left to run amok, and so the plan unfolded. The plan unfolded for God not to abandon us in our sins, but to redeem us from them. And in John's Gospel, we find the first part of the clue of what God was really on about. That Jesus, the Word of God, become flesh, become like you and me. That maybe this was always planned. Maybe this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to us stuffing it all up. Maybe God loved us so much that he gave us his son, and maybe that wasn't a surprise to him. Maybe God knew what he was doing, even back in Genesis. And so we read about this word becoming flesh and the, the light that shines in the darkness and Maybe thousands of years before, the reason the Jews were celebrating the miracle of the Hanukkah at Hanukkah is because God was cheekily, with a twinkle in his eye, planning the writing of John to talk about the light in the darkness and the miracle of life and the tree of life. And maybe God was just gently threading all these bits together over the course of a thousand years, two thousand years, across thousands of miles of landscape, across different writings by different authors in different genres, from different locations, and all of it pulling together as one. 
When I read the fullness of Scripture, I can't deny its brilliance. And I can't stop but gasp at how unlikely it is that all this stuff would hold together. So turn with me now to Revelation. So Revelation is one of those books that people find scary, but it's not scary. It's just a bit confusing. Can um, we have the video, please? Although it's not a video, I'm just going to pause this here. Or not. Is it dead? So Revelation is this curious book, written in some time between 50 AD to 90 AD. So Jesus lived from just before 0 AD, perhaps, to about 33 AD, and then the church explodes and writings that we read in the New Testament start to happen. And so from about 50 to 90, no one's quite sure when, the book of Revelation was written by someone called John. Now, mostly we believe that that John was John who wrote the Gospel of John, the Apostle Beloved of Christ. And here, perhaps, later on in his life, he writes this book of Revelation. But no longer in Jerusalem or around Israel, now exiled to Patmos. If you open up your Bibles and look on the very, very back flap, the back page, the hardcover back page, you'll see a map. If you look at that map, you'll see Israel is is vertical on one side of the map. And beyond that is where you would find Iraq, and that might be where Genesis was written, so a long way over that way. And if you look across the map, you'll see Crete. Can you see Crete in the middle of the water? Big island? If you go just up from the edge of Crete, you'll see a load of little tiny dots. One of those dots is Patmos which is where John, the writer of Revelation, ended up. And it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said... Right, I don't know how someone's voice sounds like a trumpet, but anyway, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches, like the seven lamps on a menorah. And so Revelation, what follows in the next 22 chapters, is John frantically writing down everything that he sees. But what John is looking at is not earthly stuff. It says he was in the spirit and he saw stuff in the spiritual realms. The video I had was just of a straight line. If you look at a straight line in front of you, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it is nothing other than a straight line. And if you were a two-dimensional being rather than three-dimensional, you'd look at that straight line and that's all you would know about it. But if you became a three-dimensional being and could see beyond and see around, you could turn that straight line around and perhaps it wasn't a straight line at all, but a a circle. Because a circle looked at edge on just looks like a straight line. When we look into bigger, different dimensions, things take on a different viewpoint. 
Revelation is one of those moments in Scripture when we are seeing not just with earthly eyes or earthly things, but we are looking into the spiritual realms and seeing on a different plane, in different dimensions, the stuff that God sees and God knows. That's what Revelation is all about. So you take it with not just a pinch of salt that it doesn't matter, but you have to just suspend your limited dimensionality when you read it and trust that God knows what he's talking about. And I do trust that God knows what he's talking about because of what we read in the real passage that we want to look at today. Revelation chapter 21. Can you turn with me to there? Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Gosh. Just flick forwards to the next chapter, the last chapter of Scripture. And I love that this is the last chapter of Scripture. Because in the last chapter of Scripture, we read, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Boom. Thank you very much. Well done, God. From the beginning of the Bible, thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away, to the last page of the Bible, thousands of years later, and thousands of miles in a different direction on some little island off Greece somewhere, we see God weaving everything together with this insignificant tree, the tree of life. God had a plan from the beginning. The tree of life is there at the heart of the new city of Jerusalem. The tree of life's leaves are for the healing of the nations. The tree never disappeared it was just protected by God. It was never forgotten about. It was always part of his plan. 
But what's the stuff we've skipped over? Revelation chapter 1, that passage I just read. There's a lot in there, and we haven't got time to go through it all. But the most important thing is this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, the other thing you might want to know about Jewish culture is that you very rarely read about seas in the Bible, which is odd, because the whole land of Israel is bordered by the Mediterranean Sea. But you very rarely hear any mention of the sea, because, apparently, Jewish people were very worried and scared and fearful of the sea. It was a negative thing. They were not a seafaring people. When they went from Egypt to Israel, they went across land, and they wandered around for 40 years. There was a much quicker route, (laughs) but they didn't have any boats. The only real mention of sea is Jonah. And that's not a happy story for Jonah. When he goes to sea, it goes horribly wrong. He gets chucked off a boat and swallowed by a big fish. The sea is a negative thing, and the sea is a dividing thing. The sea is a great separator. But here, the last chapter of the Bible, there is no longer any sea. There is no longer any division. There is no longer any cutoff, any barrier, any dividing thing between mankind and God. We are one. We are one how? Well, the answer is back in John. We are one through another tree, the tree of Calvary. When Christ carried the cross, made of wood, made of a tree, up a hill, and was nailed to it and killed on it, that's when the sea started to evaporate. That's when the big divide between God and man was eradicated. And Revelation is the summary of the end times when the fullness of what happened on the cross comes into our reality. But it wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction that day on Calvary, on the cross. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction here at the end of Scripture. It was the plan of God all along. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God planned on knowing you and you knowing him. What does it say in this passage? Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Wow. Do you struggle to know God today? I know that I do, often. Sometimes we get these amazing glimpses of the reality of God, and they're fantastic, but mostly we don't. Mostly it's a plod and a slog and a choice to believe. If you are so wrapped up in the consumer culture of this world, you will give up on Christianity instantly. Because we believe in the instant gratification of any desire we might have. God, I desire to know you. Make me know you right now. Oh, you failed. I do not like you anymore. Rubbish. Rubbish. There is thousands of years of God's plan to contend with. Don't think that today's consumer culture can wipe it out so quickly. But we do struggle to know God. 
but there is a time coming when we will not struggle anymore. Do you fail or struggle to believe in God because you are hurting, because you have been hurt by people, by Christians, by church? Me too. Really badly. Really badly. There is a time coming when I won't feel pain anymore, and neither will you. There's a time coming when every tear will be wiped away. I'm excited about that time. Where there will be no more lamps, oh, it's gone, on stands because there will be no more darkness. The city that we live in will be lit up constantly, day and night, but there will be no night, so it will just be day. That's going to really wreck our sleep patterns. But here's the thing. In this passage, it talks about the new Jerusalem being the bride of Christ. If you look in the book of Ephesians and you read the rest of Scripture, you start to understand that this symbol of the new Jerusalem, what is that? That's us. And here's the thing that ought to really knock your socks off. This is the thing that ought to freak you out is that all oh, this might sound fancy and grand, and oh yeah, didn't God have a great plan? But do you know what the focus of the plan was? You and me. Back there at the beginning of the Bible, God was already thinking about you. He already wanted you. He already loved you. With all your doubts and your questions and your problems and your tears, and he knew that he was going to make it all good. And he knew that he was prepared not just to give a rib or an arm and a leg, but to give his own son for you. You are the bride of Christ. Are you ready? Are you ready for the enormity of Scripture? Are you ready for the enormity of being married to, of belonging to, of being loved by, cherished by Jesus, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the everlasting, the eternal, wants you, us, the church, to be his bride. Now, if I was God, I would probably come up with a better plan than that. But God wants us for himself. He will be our God and we will be his people. No more sea, no more doubts, no more division, no more pain. Just us and him, the bride of Christ. Now, when I was full-on vicaring, I would do lots of weddings and people would come for the preparation stuff before the wedding day and I'd have the mother of the bride and the father and the best men and the bridesmaids and the ushers and the bride and the groom and they'd all be thinking about the whole thing about the whole day and I used to pretty much destroy their excitement by saying, do you know what? It really doesn't matter what else you're thinking about right now. You might be thinking about the little wedding fancies and favours going on tables and worried about who's, seated, who's seating where and 
and what covers you've got for the chairs and what the, what the music is going to be that the bride comes into and what the flowers are and whether the flowers will be ready and who's doing the hair and the makeup and what makeup palette you might use to make the bride look wonderful and all these amazing things and the car and the suits and the everything. And I used to say to them, it doesn't make one jot of difference. All of that is a total and utter waste of time. And I used to go, unless what happens on this step between this man and this woman before God means everything, then the rest means nothing. What does it mean for us as the bride of Christ to be ready? I'm really excited about the Kempton Park thing. That doesn't make us ready. I'm really excited about the plans for the church. That doesn't make us ready. I'm really excited about us being a a big youth church. That doesn't make us ready. Raising a million pounds doesn't make us ready. Having the midweek kids club with hundreds of kids in doesn't make us ready. What makes us ready? That we love Jesus. It's not rocket science. A bride can get married in whatever she wants to wear, looking at whatever she wants to look like. With whatever fancies are on the table and whatever the car is that's going to drive off, that doesn't mean anything. What matters is that she loves her husband and that he loves her. What's your focus, bride of Christ? Focus on Jesus because he has been preparing himself for you for thousands of years. Are you ready to receive? Are you ready to walk up the aisle? Are you ready to say, I do? Amen. For more information about St Saviour's, please visit our website at www.stsaviourssunbury.org.uk.